0: Well, the, uh, the trilogy on the Trinity is coming to a close. Two weeks ago in the first sermon, we saw how the, the Scriptures compel us to, to accept the existence of the Trinity. There's just too much Scripture. that We just cannot avoid understanding that God is three persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit. Now, the second sermon was about trying to get our minds a little bit around what this means, that God is three persons in one. We understand that God is three persons in one essence. And so God, that understanding of God is three in one is not a contradiction in terms. Even so, it is a concept that's just beyond our means to grab, to, to understand it. So the Trinity carries us kind of remember we use that illustration to a mountain peak. And it kind of leaves us gazing up into the heavens where we were filled with wonder. We can't go up there. It's just too great of a mystery. Well, if we can't reach up into the heavens, can God then come down to us? And the answer is, well, surprisingly enough, yes, he does come down to us, even in this kind of mind-boggling concept of the three persons in one. You might recall, those of you here last Sunday, even through your kind of being dazzled and maybe a little befuddled by it all, that I said, there are two ways that you can look at the Trinity. There is what is called, I'm going to use a theology term, the ontological way of looking at the Trinity or the imminent Trinity in which you're looking at trying to understand God in his being, who he just is, just in and of himself. That's what we were doing last Sunday. Another way to consider the Trinity It's using a term that theologians call the economic trinity. That's not how the trinity spends its money, but how do three persons of the trinity, how they relate to each other, how they relate to us. That's the fun way to look at the trinity. That's what we're about to do now. And the first thing we're going to do is, is start in the most awesome way that the Trinity relates to us, and that is in saving us. Let me read from Titus three verses four through six. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, typically, when the New Testament writers just use the term God of itself, they have in mind God the Father. And we can see that in this passage. Because the only way to make sense of the last verse is to understand that the he, is God the Father, who is pouring out the Holy Spirit onto us through Jesus Christ. When did that goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, of God the Father appear? When God the Son appeared. How do we know God's mercy and love? By his sending his Son to do that work of saving us from our sins. But note the emphasis here in this passage is actually not on the cross. It actually is on the Holy Spirit, who does that work of regenerating us, causing us to be born again. He does that work of renewal, changing us into new creatures of Jesus Christ. Let's read another salvation passage. This one is from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Part of it, it was read during the scripture reading. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So what are we being told here? It is God the Father who elected us for salvation. We are saved by the sprinkling of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross for us. And the Holy Spirit is now at work in us, sanctifying us so that we will be obedient to Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit who has already sprinkled us, he has baptized us with the blood of Christ. And let me give you one more. Since we're doing the Trinity, we should have three Scripture verses. This one is from Ephesians, in chapter 1. It's a long passage. If you want to try to follow along in your Bibles, it's on page 827 in the Church Bible, but I'm actually... As those of you who know me by now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, a different version. Beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption and Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And then I'm going to move down to verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, all of these hymns, the Apostle Paul just uses a lot of pronouns. They, they can get a little difficult to unravel. But here's what we can clearly understand. God the Father chose us to be saved. God the Father sent His Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us Through the shedding of his blood. We now have the inheritance of salvation that is sealed, that is secured by God the Holy Spirit. Think about this. All three persons of the Trinity are at work in your salvation. I mean, isn't that marvelous? Isn't that isn't that reassuring? Isn't it comforting? Do you think that you can be forgotten? Do you think you could be lost? Do you think that your salvation can can come undone? Do you think that there was ever a time that your salvation was in danger when all three persons of the Godhead are at work in your salvation and in keeping you saved? Let's take a little bit more time to think about this and think about each person, their involvement with us. Again, I'm going to read from Ephesians, this time in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And here we're being told what our condition was without Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the Spirit. That is, here he's talking about the evil spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's not a good position to be in, is it, before the holy God? And indeed, it is a hopeless position Position to be in, but the passage goes on. But God, being and is speaking here of God the Father now, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, and and seated us with him in the heavenly places. <coughs> oh, I left my water. Hang on a second. This is the water for pastors' use. It's just just for me. So it is it is well used. Okay, verse sixteen. Raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, again, of God the Father. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think back to our hopeless state, dead in our trespasses and sins, objects of wrath, but God, God the Father, is rich in mercy. And in his mercy he sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. God the Father has saved us by grace. And yet we read a bit that the salvation is through faith, our faith. But even then we're told that our faith is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. God the Father is the initiator of our salvation. He planned it. He chose us. He sent his Son to accomplish our redemption. And he sent with the Son the Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to us. And we know the role of the Son. It is he who came. It is he who shed his blood on that cross for us. Let's look a little bit more into the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that we must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And he explains by that that we must be born of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. And he says this Holy Spirit comes and goes as he wishes. That is, he is not dependent upon us taking that first step. He's not thinking, I hope. I hope that these folks will show some faith, will make a movement, will invite me to come in. God spoke of this in Ezekiel, chapter 36, in verses 26 and 27. He is speaking to his people of Israel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, God the Spirit, within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. It is the Holy Spirit who causes us to walk in God's statutes. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit for this very purpose. In John sixteen eight he says that the Spirit will convict the world concerning uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It is the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who unites us to Christ and gives us eternal life. It is the Spirit who has set us free in Christ. It is the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Now, we could go on and on with this, exploring the glorious work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit to save us, to seal our salvation, to sanctify us. But the main thing to impress upon us right now is simply this. We are not, we are never alone. See, God the Father did not simply choose us to exercise the faith necessary to be saved and to remain saved. I I want this person, I want this person, and hopefully, hopefully they'll be able to, to do it. God the Son did not carry out that work of redemption upon the cross in hopes that some of us will come to our senses and take hold of it and then be able to keep it. God the Son, God the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter to the counselor to be with us, to come in us, to convict us, to give us faith, to sanctify us, to empower us to grow in Christ. And he will not leave us until he has completed that work that he has begun in us. This is the work of salvation. This is what the Trinity has done and is doing for us. Let's talk about another area that the Trinity is deeply involved in and that we have questions about, and that is the Trinity in worship. How is the Trinity involved in worship? For that matter, how are we to worship God in light of the Trinity? take a look at my prayers. I'm fairly redundant. As as you probably have known by now, you can probably even anticipate some of the phrases and and things that I'm I'm going to say. When I give the, the invocation, that's that opening prayer, what I'm doing is I'm calling upon God the Father to receive our worship. I'm invoking God. Please come receive our worship. Now, I will... Focus when I'm thinking, when I'm praying to God in my mind, is I'm focusing on God the Father. And I will note that we have come to Him at some point in that little prayer through in Jesus Christ. That's how we're worshiping Him. And then I will say at some point, I will ask God for His Spirit to anoint us to bless us, to do something in us so that the worship that we offer will be made fit to worship God our Father. It is it is Christ then that I'm acknowledging has done the work that has made us fit to worship God. It is Christ who has opened up that curtain in the Holy of Holies in, in, in heaven so that we can appear before God. It is the Spirit who lives within us, who is among us, that touches us, focuses us, so that we can offer worship pleasing to God. Now, in the pastoral prayer, you may notice that I will address God in in a number of different ways when I open up. And usually I'm guided by what we've sung or scripture that has been read. I might approach him as our creator, as our king, as our great God, as our gracious God, most of the time I will address him as father or as heavenly father. So whatever the terms I use, I have in mind God the father. Now, again, I inevitably will go too far before I give him thanks for whom? For God the son. And then I will at some point ask For his spirit to do what? Well, shed your common grace. Work in the world. Give us your special grace to, uh, to bear fruit and bring the lost to salvation. So I'm asking the spirit will aid us in our worship, in the preaching of the word. I will even ask for the spirit to aid as we bring our offerings and use those offerings for the building of God's kingdom. So do you see the pattern here? The object of worship and of prayer is most often God the Father. God the Son is seen as the reason that worship can be given. He is the one that has made true worship possible. We cannot worship God without the Son. He is like the host who sponsors the worship gathering. But even that statement seems too light. Christ, God the Son, plays such a central role that worship, without acknowledging Him, without acknowledging His work, that is not worship. We are not worshiping God. It is not Christian worship. You remember the worship of heaven? Those of you, as we went through the series in Revelation. We came to chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 4, we read of worship that was offered to the one seated on the throne. That's God the Father. Then in chapter 5, there is the Lamb who was slain, who is worshiped. He is worthy to receive the same adulation as the Father as we're told in 5.13, to him who sits on the throne, it's God the Father, and to the Lamb, together, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so again, I want to make a note here. Christ is that litmus test. If you want to know, let's say a book you're reading, let's say you have gone to another church and a sermon is being preached, If Christ is not mentioned, if prayers are made without reference to Christ, and no reference to praying in his name, this is not Christian teaching. This is not Christian worship. Christ, Jesus Christ. We cannot worship God. We cannot know God without Jesus Christ. Now, where does the Holy Spirit come in worship? Well God the Holy Spirit is called upon to do what He does best. Again, He anoints us, He enlivens us, He He convicts us, He inspires us, He opens our hearts and our minds. If you were to look sometime and you might not now, at some point take a look at our hymn book and go through all the hymns, there's a section of the Holy Spirit. And when you read about this, you will see that every hymn is asking the Spirit to do something. Do something for us. Are there any hymns that just exalt the Holy Spirit in the same way that they do the Father and the Son? Well, there's only one hymn. I went through them. about, And it's about all three. It's about the Trinity that even makes reference to praising the Spirit. Now, what gives? Is the Holy Spirit not worthy of worship? Well, from our vantage point, he certainly is worthy of worship. I mean, he's God, after all. That's a point in the Nicene Creed when it says, "Also, the Spirit is to receive uh, the same glory as well." But even having said that, from the standpoint of that term, that economic Trinity the way in which the Trinity is presented to us in roles and relationships, it evidently means the glory of the Spirit is found in giving glory to the Father and the Son. Let's go back to that heavenly throne room, back in chapter 4 of Revelation. There the Father the Son are being worshipped. Is the Holy Spirit there? Well, He is. There's a reference to him. He is before the throne. He is spoken of as the seven spirits of God. And you might remember, that's the way the book of Revelation depicts the spirit because seven is, is fullness. And this is the way that it depicts the fullness of God. So the spirit is there. Now, but though there is worship taking place, it's to the Father. The one sitting on the throne, it is to the Lamb. The Spirit is aiding in that worship. And he's also doing something else. How do we even know what's going on there? Well, John went up there. Remember, John says, I I was taken up there. How was he taken up there? He says, in the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who brought him into the presence of God. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. He lifts us into God's presence to worship and to glorify Him. May we worship the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, we may worship the triune God. How, how can we not worship the Spirit? But again, Jesus, Jesus who so highly value the Holy Spirit that He said, look, if you you sin against the Holy Spirit, that's the unforgivable sin. I mean, he's holding up the Spirit as God. Even so, he describes what it is that the Spirit does. The Spirit testifies about him, about Jesus. We cannot find in the New Testament examples of anyone just directly addressing the Holy Spirit and just worshiping and glorifying and exalting Him in the same way that they do the Father and the Son. So apparently, I mean, I, you're not going to sin by addressing the Holy Spirit and worshiping the Holy Spirit, but apparently, at least in our lifetime, while we've still got this earth the way that it is, the Trinity wants us to relate to them in worship in this way. Focus on the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of leads us also down to the the subject of prayer. To whom should we pray? Have you ever wanted to know that? Who, Who am I supposed to be praying to? Jesus tells us. What does he say? Our Father who art in heaven. We go to God the Father for our needs. With Jesus adding one proviso, he says, do it in my name. Okay. Well, can we not pray to to Jesus? Well, of course, we can pray to Jesus, but he makes clear that our daily needs, our ordinary prayer life, we should be turning to the Father. Now, There are times when we want to address Jesus directly. Jesus, be near me. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Jesus, I love you. But Jesus tends, in in his teachings to us, to look at himself as one through whom we may have direct access to the Father. No one comes to the Father, except through me. Now, what of the Holy Spirit? Well, again, as I've said, we do not read in the New Testament of anyone praying directly to the Holy Spirit. They'll pray to, to God the Father regarding the Holy Spirit, but they don't pray directly to the Spirit. In fact, what we're told is that the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. Sometimes he just prays for us. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's in Romans 8:15. We are calling out to God because the spirit who is in us is speaking to our spirit and allowing us to do that. We're also told in Romans 8:26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You get the feeling then when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he takes special delight in glorifying the Father and the Son. This is what he loves to do. And he loves to do one other thing as well. He loves to help us. we frail creatures. Now, to turn attention directly on him, I mean, it may be okay to do, but again, it doesn't seem to be that is what delights him the most. What delights him the most is to turn our hearts, our focus upon the Father and the Son. Focus on the Father. Focus on the Son. Lean on the Holy Spirit to do both. So we've looked at the Trinity in terms of salvation, in terms of worship, in terms of our prayer life. Something else that's important to us that the Trinity teaches us, and that's about community. As tempting as it is, I have to tell you that I had to hold back to, to go into the theology of the relationships of the Trinity but I thought after last Sunday, that'd be too much pushing you here. We have, there's one feature, just one feature we're going to look at. And it's really the most important feature of all it's the feature of love. Now, I would not say that God could not be a God of love if He was but one person. But you can see, can't you? understanding God as three persons in one essence, it really shines a lot of light on this aspect of God. I mean, think about it. For eternity, the three persons of God have loved one another. Did God create us because he was lonely? How could the three persons of the Godhead be lonely? How could they ever have been bored with one another? And if God, three in one, have always had one another. I mean, think about this. Think about what it means when he made us. He actually says what it means. It's in Genesis 2, verse 18. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, this applies to marriage, but more than just marriage. Man, we humans, were made to be communal. We were made to relate to one another, particularly to one another of our own human race. That that picture of the the hermit somewhere there in the woods and just being alone with God is not the ideal picture of Scripture. We are made to relate. We are made to love. The Trinity, think about this, the Trinity loves us. God the Father so loved the world that he sent God the Son to us. God the Son loved us so much that he did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, but he became our servant on the cross. The Holy Spirit loved us so much. That though he is like that wind, kind of coming and going as he pleases, he nevertheless is deigned to enter us, to make his residence with us. Now, actually, there is a little bit more to their motivation of the Son and the Holy Spirit. God the Son loves God the Father so much that he will do whatever pleases the Father. Unfortunately fortunately for us, what pleases the Father is our salvation. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and His Son so much that He will do whatever is their bidding for our good. Such is the love of the three persons of the Godhead for one another. and Such is their love for us. So as you explore this and think about this, I mean, no wonder now that Jesus told his disciples what the mark would be by which the world is supposed to identify his disciples. You know what that mark is, don't you? It is our love for one another. It makes all the sense in light of the Trinity. Three persons whose very nature is to live in a loving unity. Now, this would be the time, but I don't have enough time to talk to you about doing the better job of loving one another. That's kind of what it leads to, doesn't it? i got just enough time for a better thought. It is this. The three persons of the Trinity still love you. God the Father. God God the Son reconciled us. We're told in, in Romans 5 with God the Father, when we were the enemies of God. And he says, how much more now? Now that we're reconciled, can you be secure in your salvation, in the love of God? Or consider God the Son. We're told that as members of the church, we are members of Christ's body. Ephesians talks about this. In Ephesians five twenty nine thirty. 30. It says this, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. It's just another way of saying, look, that love that brought Christ down, it's never left us. There's nothing you can do, nothing you have done that can take away that love because you are members of his body. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is our comforter. He prays for us when we're weak. That's when He he especially does His thing, is when we're weak and frail, when when we cannot pray. He connects us to the Father and the Son. He sustains us. He breathes life into us. He's the seal of our salvation. And there is that promise. He will not leave us. Until that good work begun in us, spoken of in Philippians one six, is completed, such is the love of the Spirit. If you can remember back, those of you who were here two weeks ago, after you heard that ser- sermon series, at least you came up to me, boy, you you were pumped up. This was great! Wow, you were you were excited. Wow. The second Sunday kind of scratching your head and saying, wow, man, that's something on this, you know. You're a bit bewildered. Well, this Sunday, this Sunday, may you just walk out feeling blessed by what the Trinity means for you. That's great. Oh, we are blessed. God, our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we are blessed with who you are what you have done, what you are doing, what you will continue to do until that day that we ourselves are brought up into glory. Oh, we give you praise for how wondrous you are, how mysterious you are, and give you praise that in that great wonder and mystery that you are the God who is with us, near us, and the God who loves us.